Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Old Testament. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll be using for the text the Joseph Smith translation of the Old Testament, along with many commentaries from general authorities of the Church, BYU professors, Bible scholars, and others. This format will be very detailed, and so if you want a deep analysis of the Old Testament, you come to the right place. Thanks for your attendance. Hi, and welcome back to the Old Testament podcast. This will be for Exodus chapter 15. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Tradition informs us that the song of Moses was sung in sections, one for each Sabbath in the temple at the close of the Sabbath morning service. The song of Moses consists of three stanzas, of which the first two show the power of Jehovah in the destruction of his enemies, while the third gives thanks for the result in the calling of Israel to be the kingdom of God and their possession of the promised inheritance. Notes by Alfred Edersheim. Verse 2, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation, or praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them, they sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee, thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils the waters were gathered together, the floods stood upright as a heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust, Hebrew soul or desire, shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, and my my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind, the sea covered them, they sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful, or praised with awe in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretched out thy right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina or Philistia. Then the dukes or the chiefs of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone till thy people pass over. O Lord, till thy people pass over which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. 
And Miriam, the, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron and Moses, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. As Israel took in the morning light across the new quiet sea, into which Jehovah had so lately shaken the pursuers of his people, their past danger must have seemed to them greater than ever. Along that defile, the only practicable road their enemies had followed them. Assuredly, the sea was the only pathway of safety to them, and in that sea they had been baptized unto Moses and unto Moses' God. And now, as they turned towards the wilderness, there seemed to stand before them and to extend all along their line of vision east and north a low ridge of bare limestone hills that bounded the prospect rising like a wall. Accordingly, they called this the wilderness of Shur, or the wall. This, then, was the wilderness, fresh, free, and undisputed. But this also was the great and terrible wilderness, so full of terror, danger, and difficulty, through which they must now pass. Under the shadow of that mass of rocky peaks, along the dry torrent beds which intersect them, through the unbroken stillness of that scenery, of which grandeur and desolateness are the characteristics led their way, a befitting road to such a sanctuary as Sinai, but what contrast in all around to the Egypt they had left behind only a few hours. When we think of the desert through which Israel journeyed, we must not picture to ourselves a large, flat, sandy tract wholly incapable of cultivation. In fact, it is in almost every particular quite the contrary. The tract, that tract of land which bears the name of the peninsula of Sinai extends between the Gulf of Suez on the west and that of Aqaba, or the Persian Gulf, on the east. Its configuration its heart, is heart-shaped, the broader part lying towards Palestine, the narrower, or apex, stretching southwards into the sea. It really consists of three distinct portions. The northern, called the Wilderness of T, or of the Wandering, is pebbly, high tableland, the prevailing color being that of the gray limestone. Next comes a broad belt of sandstone and yellow sand, the only one in the desert of the Exodus. To the south of it, in the apex of the peninsula, lies the true Sinaitic Ridge. This portion bears the name of the Tor and consists in the north chiefly of red limestone and in the center of red granite and green porphyry. The prevailing character of the scenery is that of an irregular mass of mountains thrown together in wild confusion. The highest, re- highest peak rises to about 9,000 feet. Between these, win- between these wind what seem and really are terrib- uh, torrent beds, filled perhaps for a very short time in winter, but generally quite dry. These are called wadis, and they form the highway through the wilderness. Here and there, where either a living spring rises or the torrent has left its marks, or where the hand of man is at work, cultivated patches, fair and fruitful, are found. Palm trees spring up, even gardens and fields and rich pasture ground, but generally the rocky mountainsides are bare of all vegetation, and their bright coloring gives the scenery its peculiar character. 
the prevailing tints of red and green, but this is varied by what seems a purple rose of crimson of crimson-colored stream poured down the mountainside, while occasionally the green of the porphyry deepens into black. Over all this, unbroken silence prevails so that the, one, so that the voice is heard in the pure air of, at extraordinary distances. Besides the cultivated or, fruited, or fruitful spots already mentioned, and tiny rock flowers and aromatic herbs, the vegetation of the wilderness consists chiefly of the caper plant, the hyssop of the Bible, which springs from the clefts of the rocks and hangs down in, in gay festoons, the thorn, a species of acacia, another species of the same tree, the shatim wood of scripture, of which the framework of the tabernacle was made, the white broom or juniper of scripture, and the tamarisk, which at certain seasons of the year produces the natural manna. This leads us to say that it were a mistake to suppose that the wilderness offered to mean no means of support to those who inhabited it. Even now it sustains a not inconsiderable population, and there is abundant evidence that before neglect and ravages had brought it to its present state, it could and did support a very, lar a very much larger number of people. There were always Egyptian colonies engaged in working the large copper, working its large copper, iron, and turquoise mines, and these settlers would have looked well to its springs and cultivated spots. Nor could the Israelites, any more than the modern Bedouin, have had difficulty in supporting in the desert their numerous herds and flocks. <clears throat> these would again supply them with milk and cheese, and occasionally with meat. We know from Scripture that at a later period the Israelites were ready to buy food and water from the Edomites, and they may have done so from passing caravans as well. Similarly, we gather from such passages as Leviticus, Numbers, and others that they must have had a supply of flour either purchased or of their own sowing and reaping during their prolonged stay in certain localities, such as the modern Bedouins still cultivate while what soil is fit, to, is fit for it. Such was the wilderness on which Israel now entered. During the forty years that Moses had tended the flocks of, of Jethro, its wadis and peaks, its pastures and rocks, must have become well known to him. Nor could the Israelites themselves have been quite ignorant of its character, considering the constant connection between Egypt and the desert. We are therefore the more disposed to attach credit to those explorers who have tried to ascertain what may have been the most likely route taken by the children of Israel. This has of late years been made the subject of investigation by scholars thoroughly qualified for the task. Indeed, a special professional, professional survey has been made of the desert of Sinai. This, the result is that most of the stations on the journey of Israel have been ascertained, while in reference to the rest, great probability attaches to the opinion of the explorers. Verse 23, <clears throat> And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the water of Marah, for, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. The accounts of travelers quite agree with the narrative of the Bible. Three days' journey over pebbly ground through desert wadis and at last among bare white and black limestone hills, with nothing to relieve the eye except in the distance the shore or wall of Rocky Mountain, which gives its name to the desert, would bring the weary, dispirited multitude to the modern Har Harwa, Hawar Hawar Hawara, 
and Mar- the Mara of the Bible. Worse than fatigue and depression now, now oppressed them, for they began to suffer from want of water. For three days they had not come upon any spring, and their own supplies must have been well nigh exhausted. When arrived at Hawara, they found indeed a pool, but as the whole soil of impregnated with nitre, the water was bitter and unfit for use. Luther aptly remarks that when our provision ceases, our faith is wont to come to an end. It was so here. The circumstances seemed indeed hopeless. The spring is still considered the worst on the whole road to Sinai, and no means have ever been suggested to make its water drinkable. But God stilled the murmuring of the people and met met their wants by a miraculous interposition. Moses was shown a tree which he had which which he was to cast into the water, and it became sweet. Whether or not it was the thorny shrub which grows so profusely is of little importance. The help came directly from heaven, and the lesson was twofold. There he made them he made them he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. The statute or principle and the ordinance or fight was this, that in all seasons of need and seeming impossibility, the Lord would send deliverance straight from above, and that Israel might expect this during their wilderness journey. This statute is, for all time, the principle of God's guidance, and this ordinance the right or or privilege of our heavenly citizenship. But he also ever proves us by this, that the enjoyment of our right and privilege is made to depend upon a constant exercise of faith. Verse 26, And said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought up upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water, and threescore and ten palm trees. And they encamped there by the waters. And that's the end of the chapter. I hope you like this, and we'll see you next time. Bye.